All right, please turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, and we'll be reading verses 12 and 13 this morning. Hebrews 4, verses 12 and 13. There the word of Christ says this. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word that you've given to us, Lord, to teach us about your character and your nature, Lord, that we might know who you are, the only true God, and Lord, what it is that you require of man. Lord, we see that nothing can be hidden from your sight. All things are laid open and bare, Lord, to your eyes. So Lord, teach us today that we cannot be hypocrites, Lord, that we cannot be false in our profession. Lord, we cannot turn away from you and think that it will go unnoticed, or think that we will somehow escape. And so, Father, we pray that today you would ignite within us, Lord, a zeal, Lord, for truth and righteousness, Lord, for faithfulness, Lord, that we might prove ourselves to be good and faithful servants who have done the will of our Master, so that when we stand before you, Lord, our sincerity and our truthfulness, Lord, our desire to know and to love you, that, Lord, these things would be made manifest and, Lord, brought into open light. So, Lord, may this be true of us, and we pray today, Lord, that you would teach us from your word and that, Lord, we would always be prepared to stand before our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, we remember that in this passage, the apostle, uh, his main point is exhorting us to enter into God's rest that is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The only way that one can have his sins forgiven, that a man can have peace with God, that we can be the, have the assurance of eternal life, is through Jesus Christ. Right? Because of sin, man is in a state of unrest. But through faith in Christ, he enters into rest due to the forgiveness of sins. We enter into this rest at our conversion in a very real and true way. Yet in some regards, this rest is still awaiting its full and future consummation. And so while we are in this present life, until we see the Lord face to face, there is the need for the children of God to continually, day by day, enter into God's rest in the person of Christ. Not that a man needs to be converted over and over again in his life, but a man must abide in Christ. He must live by faith in the Son of God. He must continually live in this rest through faith in Christ. As it says in Romans chapter 1, verse 17, that the righteous shall live by faith. We enter into rest by faith in Christ, and we abide in this rest by persevering in our faith. The faith we profess at our conversion must be an enduring faith. It must be a faith that holds fast to Christ firm until the end. It cannot be a false, superficial hypocritical faith, but rather one that is true until the end. Remember Hebrews chapter 3, verse 6. Hebrews 3, verse 6. He says, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Then also Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ, if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance, firm until the end. Then chapter 4, verse 1 says, Therefore let us fear, if while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. Then last week, chapter 4, verse 11 Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. This is the exhortation he is driving home throughout this passage. His audience are those who have made a good profession of faith in Christ. 
They have begun the Christian life, but now they are being tempted to turn away from Christ, to give up their confidence and their hope. And he does not want them to follow the same example of disobedience as the wilderness generation. They made a good profession of faith at Mount Sinai. They said, all that the Lord says, we will do. But then they proved that this profession was false. It was temporary. It was not true because they did not have perseverance. But as soon as they faced the very first bit of adversity, they turned away and they gave up their confidence. It was not coming from true faith, but from a false zeal. They had a moment of sobriety, but as soon gave way and they quickly manifested an evil, unbelieving heart that fell away from the living God. And so this is what we are being warned of. The apostles' congregation, as well as we, have made a good profession of faith in Christ. We have begun the Christian life. But it is not enough that we begin the race. It is only those who finish the race who will receive the crown. We must run with endurance so that we do not come short of entering into our eternal rest. So we finished last week with this exhortation to be diligent to enter into that rest. We must diligently enter into rest. We cannot pin our hope on falsehood and lies that we can sin and yet not be punished on the day of judgment. If we are unbelieving, if we fall away from the living God, if we are disobedient, then we will face God's wrath just as that wilderness generation. Now in Hebrews 4, 12 and 13, he's going to turn to the day of judgment. The day of judgment in order to reaffirm or give even a greater reinforcement to this exhortation to be diligent to enter into that rest. So let's look at Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. Hebrews 4, 12 says, For the word of God is living and active, and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Here, verses 12 and then verse 13 are given to reinforce the exhortation of verse 11. He has called us to be diligent to enter into God's rest in Christ so that none of us would fall following the same example of disobedience. There is the exhortation, which is be diligent, and then there is the danger. The danger is that we might fall through unbelief. We need to be faithful to the Lord to enter rest by persevering in our faith, by believing constantly in Christ. And we need to be aware of the dangers of unbelief so that at the first risings of unbelief that takes hold in our heart, we are diligent, we take it seriously, we mortify the deeds of the flesh so that we do not let it germinate and begin to have its way within our life. We must be watchful over our own souls, over our hearts, for the Lord with whom we have to do can see all things. He sees even the deepest recesses of our hearts, and they are exposed to his eyes, which are a flame of fire. Men are prone to believe many lies when it comes to judgment. One of these being that our sins will not be found out. There are many people who believe this who believe that our sins can be hidden from the Lord, that God does not see our sins, especially those secret sins, especially those things that men cherish and harbor in their hearts and minds. And yet, this is contrary to what the Bible teaches us. Psalm 94. Psalm 94 expresses the sentiment found in many, many people. Psalm 94, verses 1 through 11. Psalm 94, verse 1 says, O Lord, God of vengeance, God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Render recompense to the proud. How long shall the wicked, O Lord, how long shall the wicked exult? They pour forth words. They speak arrogantly. All who do wickedness vaunt themselves. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They slay the widow and the stranger and murder the orphans. They have said, The Lord does not see. Nor does the God of Jacob pay heed. Pay heed, you senseless among the people, 
And when will you understand, stupid ones? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who chastens the nations, will he not rebuke? Even he who teaches man knowledge, the Lord knows the thoughts of man, that they are a mere breath. There, the people believe that God does not see and God does not hear. And here the psalmist is showing them how stupid this is, how foolish it is. How is it that he who created our ears does not hear what we say? How is it that he who formed our eyes does not see all things and see even there within the depths of our hearts? The other great lie that people believe is that God will not judge us with strictness. That the threats and warnings in the Bible are there in theory only. That God is making these big threats. He's giving these great warnings about the day of judgment. But God is only doing this to terrify men. He's not going to follow through with all of the threats and all of the things that he says in Scripture. He gives the impression that he is a very harsh judge, but really deep down, he's a big softy, right? And he's just going to brush everything aside, and everything is going to work out in the end. That God's bark is much bigger than his bite. But this is not consistent with the teaching of Scripture. The Bible teaches that whatever God says... This he will do. So if he says he's going to judge, and if he says he's going to judge in a certain way, will God fail to do what he has said? No, he's always going to do what he has promised. Well, here, these two verses, Hebrews 12 and 13, completely obliterate such false notions. For they show us that he does see all things. He even sees those things that are hidden, and that he will judge men according to what he discovers in the heart. And all of this is for the purpose of inflaming our zeal so that we would seriously consider our own hearts, so that we would watch over our hearts, that our faithfulness to God would not be merely outward by way of show, but it would be inward, that it would be true, that it would be sincere, that our love and faithfulness to God would be flowing from a heart that desires to do the will of God that loves God, where there is true faith to be found. And this is what must be true of us, seeing that the secret impulses of the heart and mind are open to Him. They're all laid bare before Christ, and we will give account to Him on the day of judgment. We cannot entertain a fool's hope that we can cherish iniquity in our hearts and that it will go unnoticed and unpunished. God knows our deeds. He knows everything about us. He knows us better than we know ourselves. He sees everything that is there. It is all laid open and bare before the Lord. Remember Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. Revelation chapter 3, verse 1. says, To the angel of the church of Sardis write, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die, for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard, and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. He tells them there that you have a name, that you are alive, but actually, he says, you're dead. You're giving this impression, you're giving it out outwardly that you are alive. You're claiming these things, but I know what's really going on on the inside. I know what is there within your heart, that actually, there's death there, and you need to repent of these sins. Also, Revelation 3.14. Revelation 3.14. To the angel of the church of Laodicea write... The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of creation of God says this, I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed 
and I solve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, therefore be zealous and repent. Here, their estimation of themselves was in complete contrast, counter, a contradistinction of Christ's estimation of them. They thought they were wealthy. They thought they had need of nothing. And yet Jesus tells them, you are wretched, miserable. You are poor, blind, naked people. And where is Jesus gaining this information? How is it that he's able to come to such an accurate, such an intimate acquaintance with his own church? It is because he sees all things. He knows everything is laid open and bare to the eyes of him to whom we give an account. So this is what he means here, and this is what he is teaching in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. Notice there in verse 12, it begins by saying this, For the word of God is living and active. He begins with a serious consideration of who we will all stand before on the day of judgment. We must consider who Jesus Christ is, what God the Father has entrusted to him, namely, judgment. He has entrusted all judgment to the Son. And then how will Jesus execute his office of judge over all mankind? I do take here this phrase, the Word of God, to be a direct reference to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the subject of verses 12 and 13. He's talking about the divine Son of God who is none other than the Word of God. Notice in John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. Here, at the beginning of John's gospel, this is the way he describes Jesus as the Word of God. John 1, 1 to 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. There, it's obvious that he's talking about the divine Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And here he refers to him as the Word of God. Also, in Revelation chapter 19, Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 to 13, use this same title, this same name for Jesus Christ. Revelation 19.11 says, And I saw heaven, and op heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. There, his name is called the Word of God. This is one of the names given to Jesus Christ. He is the Word of God. And here, his sight, the way he sees, his eyes are a flame of fire. This is the same as the eyes of him to whom we have to do. Now, again, many of the things that are said in Hebrews 4 verses 12 and 13 Certainly many of these things are true of the written word of God. And they're also true of the spoken word of God. God's word, his written and spoken word, they do declare God's judgments on the earth. It is true that God's word, whether read or spoken, is sharper than any two-edged sword. It does penetrate into the hearts of men. But all of these properties are true of both the written and spoken word because of the source of authority from which the word of God came. And where did the written word come from? Where did the spoken word come from? The divine word of God. It came from Christ. These things are true of the written word because of its relationship to the divine word of God, the eternal son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So I take it here then that he's speaking directly of Christ. Jesus is the subject that is being addressed in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. Which is important to remember. Because when Christians are being tempted to apostatize, are being tempted to turn away from the faith, when they're being tempted to fall away, who are they falling away from? 
Well, they are falling away from the true God, but how do we come to know the true God? In the person of whom? In the person of Jesus Christ. Rejecting Jesus as the Messiah, as the only sacrifice for sin, is a very foolish thing to do. Because who will we answer to on that day of judgment? We will answer to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the great danger of apostasy. For the very Jesus that a man rejects is the Jesus he will stand before on the day of judgment. And can you imagine the shock, the horror, the dread, the trepidation that men will experience when they come to see and understand that the Christ that they rejected, that they they ridiculed and mocked, is the very Christ that they will answer to on the day of judgment. What about Caiaphas and Annas, those two priests there who were so instrumental against Christ, against him and rejecting him, leading the nation to reject him, the ones instigating these things that led to his crucifixion? What about Herod and Pilate, who stood as unjust judges over Jesus Christ and unjustly handed him over to his tormentors to be executed? What about Judas Iscariot, that false disciple, that false professor, that apostate who forsook the Lord Jesus Christ, who betrayed him, who committed treachery against him? What about all of those who inflicted such injustice, such cruelty upon Christ? To discover that on the day of judgment, the very one that they abuse so mercilessly is the one that they must give an account to on the day of judgment. Well, do we not need to consider this as well? The word of God has been appointed by God as Savior, but he has also been appointed by God as judge. He possesses and and obtains both roles. He is both Savior and judge. And if we will not have him as our judge, casting us into the lake of fire, then we better have him as our Savior in this present life. The way we prepare ourselves to stand before Jesus the judge is by receiving him as Jesus our Savior, by getting an interest in his death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins. John chapter 5. John 5, 22 to 29. John 5, 22 to 29. says, For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, He who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. There the Father judges no one, but he has given all judgment into the hands of the Son. And in 2 Corinthians 5.20 it says, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So, again, I do believe then the best interpretation of Hebrews 4.12 is to take the word of God as a direct reference to the divine word of God to Jesus Christ. He is the subject of verses 12 and 13, and it is calling us to give a due consideration of who Jesus is and how it is that he will execute his role as judge. And whenever we do this, it will keep us ever vigilant and watchful over our own heart, our mind, and our souls so that we are diligent to enter into his rest. Here, Jesus is described using various attributes. The first one, he says, is that the word of God is living, is living. Jesus Christ 
has life in himself, and he is the author of all life. Anywhere in this world that we see life, it all comes from one source. And who is the source of all life? Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the living one. He is the living Christ, the living God. When the Bible refers to God as the living God, it means that God's life is found in himself. God is the author of all life, and God himself needs no one else or no, uh, no other thing for him to have life. He has life in and of himself. He is the one who depends on no other person or no other thing for his life, and he is the one who gives to all mankind life, breath, and all things. He depends on no one, but we all depend upon him. It says in John 1.4, In him, in Christ, was life, and this life was the light of men. And then as we just read in John 5.25, Just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. We do not have life in ourselves. right? Our life comes from God, but God has life in himself. We need him for life, but he doesn't need us. He doesn't need us for anything since he is the one who gives to all mankind life, breath, and all things. Well, the one that we have to do with, the one that we will stand before on the day of judgment, is the living one. It is Jesus Christ. Not some dead idol. Not some false god who has no life. Right? If we served a false god, if we served dead idols, then there would be no need for us to have fear of retribution. We could be careless in our devotion to our false god. We could be careless in our obedience. We could, with unfaithfulness, serve that idol. We could play loose and fast with our profession, for the idol is dead. The idol can do absolutely nothing to us. If we apostatize from an idol, then what do we have to fear? Right? What can that idol do to any of us? This is because false gods and idols are dead. They have no life in them. They cannot do anything to those who fail to serve them. Do we have any fear of Allah, the false god of the Muslims? What can he do to us, seeing that he's a false god, right? He has no power. He cannot do anything to anyone on the day of judgment. And this is true of all of the false gods that exist in this world. But who will we stand before on the day of judgment? Are we answering to a dead idol? Or will we stand before the living Christ, the one who has life in himself? That is who that we, we will stand before, and that calls for us to fear. We ought to fear because we will answer to the living God. Notice Hebrews chapter 10, verse 31. Hebrews 10, 31 says, It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of of the living God. It's not a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a dead God, but it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That Jesus is the living one gives two great motives for obedience and faithfulness to him. Right? On the one hand, because he has life in himself, he is able to give eternal life to whomever he wills. And on the other hand, because he has life in himself, he is able to withhold eternal life from whomever he wills. Eternal life and eternal death are in the hands of Jesus Christ as the living one. And on the day of judgment, he will give to each man according to what he has done. He will give to each man either eternal life or eternal death. And we are assured in Scripture that those who are faithful to Christ, as we read from Matthew 25 on Wednesday night, those good, wise, faithful slaves of Christ, they will not go unrewarded on the day of judgment, but they will receive from Christ as their reward eternal life. He will say, enter into the joy of your master. And we are assured in Scripture that those who are unfaithful to him, those evil, wicked, lazy, unfaithful slaves, that they will not go unpunished, but they will receive from Christ on the day of judgment as their recompense, eternal death. 
eternal life or eternal death. This is what Jesus will reward on the day of judgment. And he has the ability to do this because he is the living one. It says in Deuteronomy 32.39, Deuteronomy 32.39 says, See now that I, I am he, and there is no God besides me. It is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded, and it is I who heal. And there is no one who can deliver from my hand. He is the one who puts to death, and he is the one who gives life. He wounds a man, and he can heal a man, and no one can deliver us from his hand. Whatever he determines to do to a man, Jesus will bring it about. He will fulfill all of these things. Those who are diligent to enter into his rest will not go unrewarded. Those who fall through following the same example of disobedience, they will not go unpunished. He is the living God. Next, notice the divine word is described as living and active. He is active. He has the power to act. And what he determines to do based upon his judgment is what he will do. He will act and he does act upon men. And whenever he acts, he accomplishes exactly what he wants to do. He always brings about his perfect will. With true professors, he has the power to uphold them in their faith. He is the one who exercises his power toward them to keep them from stumbling, to make them blameless on the day of Christ, to to, uh, preserve them in their faith, and to give them eternal life. With false professors, he has the power to harden them in their sins. He has the power to expose them. He has the power to bring their hypocrisy to light and to reveal the secrets of their hearts. And Christ is not idle in dealing with his churches. But he is always working, always active, always among them, always convicting and exposing our sin, always sustaining and building up those who belong to him. He is active, he is powerful, he is working in this world and especially in his church, right among us, doing his will, always accomplishing it according to his will, and he has the ability to do this because he has all power. All power belongs to Christ. Revelation 1, 9 to 20. Revelation 1, 9 to 20. Notice here how our Lord Jesus Christ is described as he is active amongst his church. Revelation 1, 9 to 20. says, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance, which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet, saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamon and to Thyatira and Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe reaching to his feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white, like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in the furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys to death and of Hades. Therefore, write the things that you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. And as for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. There, this vision of Christ, describing him with these divine attributes, but it's he's exercising these things as he is in the midst of his lampstands. And his lampstands are his church. He is always active in his church. Though we do not see him with our eyes, 
He is here with us. He is present always in His church, acting, moving, working, doing His will, accomplishing it among us. He knows what we are. He sees within our hearts. He knows what kind of people we are. We cannot hide ourselves from Him, but we are always open and exposed to Him. We know as well in Revelations chapter 2 and 3, we see that Christ there in His address to these seven churches has intimate knowledge of what they are doing. He knows exactly who they are. He knows exactly what is going on amongst His churches. He knows both their sins and their faithfulness, and He is the one who is working among them. In His activity, He is exercising His power. Christ is described as being sharper than any two-edged sword. Christ here in Revelation 1.16 was described as having a sharp two-edged sword coming out of His mouth. And here in Hebrews 4.12, He Himself is described as being a sharp two-edged sword. Two-edged because Christ, He cuts. He pierces deeply into us. In whichever way His sword turns, it penetrates and it cuts into the hearts of men. When Christ is acting in His church, when He is exercising His power among us, the sharp two-edged sword of His mouth cuts deep into our hearts It exposes our sins and it brings forward both our sin and our faith and our faithfulness to Him. And in this present life, this power is exercised by the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Christ is present with us today through His Spirit and through His Word, and He is exercising His authority among us as a sharp two-edged sword. It is Christ Himself who makes his word powerful and effective among us. And what is he intended in this description is the spiritual, almighty, penetrating power of the Lord Jesus Christ in the dealings with the souls and conscience of men by his word and by his spirit. Christ uses his sword in a twofold way. First, The sword is the weapon of the soldier. And the soldier uses his sword to penetrate through the defenses of his enemies. So also Christ uses his sword to penetrate through the feeble, vain, worthless defenses of sinners that are placed up in their pride against his authority and against his reign. The Lord Jesus, by his word and spirit, pierces through the obstinate pride of men. He pierces through the security of men, the lies and the false hopes of men, the stubborn unbelief of men. Though a man be ever so hardened in his sin, the sword of the Spirit wielded in the hands of Christ is always able to penetrate deep into the recesses of his heart. Wasn't this the case on the day of Pentecost? Those Jews who had conspired against Christ, who were so blinded in their sin, so hardened in their sin, filled with self-righteousness, so wicked that they crucified the Lord of glory. Yet when the sharp two-edged sword came forth from the mouth of Christ, it says in Acts chapter 2, verse 37, that when they heard these things, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest, Brethren, what shall we do? There it says, they were pierced to the heart. Pierced to the heart with what? With the very sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. Coming forth from Christ, it pierced into their hearts and it exposed their sin. It brought them to an awareness, to a conviction of their sin and the righteous judgment of God that was against them because of what they had done. And that's why they say, brethren, what shall we do? Right? What shall we do in light of who we are? We have realized, we have come to this understanding, we have this conviction of the knowledge of our sin and the judgment of God that stands against us. So what should we do in light of these things? And they are told there to repent, to repent for the forgiveness of sins. There, the sword of the Spirit was able to penetrate, to pierce deep within their hearts. What about the Apostle Paul before his conversion? 
Was there ever a man more obstinate, more filled with pride, filled with self-righteousness, hardened against Christ, hardened against the gospel, hardened against the church, breathing out threats and murder against the disciples, even on his way on the road to Damascus to capture Christians and he might deliver them up to death in Jerusalem. A hard-hearted man, filled with pride, filled with self-righteousness, filled with loathing for Christ and for the church, filled with false zeal. Yet when Christ appeared to him, and the sharp two-edged sword came forth from the mouth of Christ, that reprobate of a man was cut to the heart. The sword of the Spirit cut through all of his self-righteousness, all of his false hopes, all of his obstinate pride, and laid that man low. And so let it be known today that the sword of the Spirit, the sword of Christ, is able to cut through whatever defense and whatever opposition that stands in its way. If Christ determines to save a sinner, to convict him of his sin, to bring him to the knowledge of the truth, he has the instrument in his hand that will always get the job done. And has his spirit, his sword ever failed? Has it ever failed to cut into the heart of man if that's what Christ wants to do? It never fails to do what it's sent to accomplish. We should have great confidence in the word of Christ, in the sword that comes forth from him, that he is able to do exactly what he wants. We ought to pray also that Christ would exercise this ministry among us, that he would use the sword of his mouth to penetrate deep into our hearts, to expose our sin, to expose our faithfulness, to bring these things to light so that we might repent of our sin and strengthen what is there that remains, strengthen those things that are good. This is the first use of the sword. It is the weapon of the soldier, the tool of the soldier, to cut through the defenses of his enemies. Secondly, the sword is used by the ruler to execute judgment upon those who break the law against all evildoers. This is as it said in Romans 13, 14, when it says that the ruling authority does not bear the sword in vain. There, the sword is the instrument used to execute judgment upon those who break the law. So Christ also uses his sword to execute judgment upon those who are his enemies, upon wicked, upon the wicked, upon hypocrites, upon false professors, against all apostates. Christ will slay them with the breath of his mouth. He will hack them to pieces with the sharp two-edged sword that comes forth from his mouth. And we can be assured that he will do this. We should not put our hope in a lie that Christ will not execute judgment on the day of judgment. Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah 11 verses 1 to 5. Isaiah 11, verses 1 to 5. It says, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord, and he will not judge by what his eye sees, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Also righteousness will be the belt of his loins and faithfulness the belt about his waist. There with righteousness he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. This is the sharp two-edged sword that is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. When he arouses himself against a man to bring judgment upon them, he will be successful in what he does. He will slay them. Here, notice in Hebrews 4.12, how deep will this sword penetrate? How meticulous and precise is Christ able to execute his judgments 
by the sword of the Spirit. Well, notice he says, It pierces as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. This is the same as the prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 11. He will not judge by what his eyes see, and he will not judge by what his ear hears. Here, the meaning is that Jesus will not judge merely by outward appearance. Certainly, he will judge the deeds of men. He will judge what he sees us and what we perform here on the outside. But his judgment reaches farther than simply the external obedience or disobedience of men. His judgment reaches farther than merely the words, the audible words that come out of our mouth. He is able to judge even on those things that are internal, those things that are unseen, those things that are secret and hidden to the eyes of men are open and laid bare to the eyes of Christ. His judgments over men are exercised even in the innermost secret hidden things of the heart. His judgments are able to divide between soul and spirit, between joints and marrow, right? These are things that are hidden from men. What man among us has the ability to judge the soul and spirit of another man? What person among us is able to make a division outwardly between the joints and marrow of another man? We don't have the ability to take a sword and pierce it into a man and make a distinction between his joints and his marrow. These are things that are unseen, that are hidden from the eyes of men. But those things that are hidden from men are open and laid bare to Christ. Those spiritual, invisible, hidden things in the heart, he can see those things and he will bring even these things to light on the day of judgment. Christ is able to penetrate into the most hidden, secret recesses of both the body and the soul. The separation of soul and spirit, the separation of joint and marrow, is communicating to us that Jesus will judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. He can see our hearts. He sees what is in there. He has all of the information available and necessary to make perfect judgments concerning mankind. He will execute his role as judge with perfection. He will never make any mistakes. This is not true in human justice, in justice in this present world. Men cannot always judge with righteousness. And there are times when even good men, even amongst them, justice is thwarted because the wicked may go unpunished. And there are times when the righteous may be punished. Because men are not able with such precision and accuracy to bring about perfect judgment on the earth. Even the best of men can only do the best that they can. Only by what they see, only by what they hear, can they do these things. And other times, justice is perverted because there is corruption in men. At other times, it is because of men's weakness. His inability to see into the heart, to know the intentions to know all that is going on, because none of us are omniscient. We are finite. We have a limited ability to be able to discern what is true and right. But this is not the case with Christ. He is able to execute his judgments perfectly. Not one true believer will accidentally be condemned on the day of judgment. It will never happen. There's not one of his sheep that he will accidentally assign with the goats because he's not able to make an accurate judgment. This will not happen with Christ. And on the other hand, there is not one hypocrite, not one false professor, not one apostate who will escape his judgment, who will be assigned with the righteous on the day of judgment, who will enter into the kingdom of God unaware of Christ, because he has access to everything. All of the thoughts, all of the intentions of the heart are laid bare before him. He knows who possesses a good and true heart. He knows those that have his spirit within him. He knows those that he has produced true faith in. 
He sees that there. He sees those good principles that are in the heart of the righteous, that have been brought about there by the work of the Holy Spirit. He knows who are his own. He knows who has a good heart, a heart that has true faith within it. He also knows who has an evil, unbelieving heart. He knows who has a heart filled with lies and hypocrisy. And this is peculiar to God alone. Only he has the ability to see and judge the hearts of men perfectly in this way. There are times where we can come to understand these things, when we might come to understand that a person is a hypocrite, but only after much time and only after much exposure of sin that is on the inside that comes to the outside. But Christ knows all these things all the time. Right? He knows it perfectly. He knows it even at the beginning, whether one is true or false. The 11 apostles, they did not understand until Judas apostatized that he was a false professor. They considered him as one of their own. But Jesus was not under this delusion. Jesus knew from the very beginning who belonged to him and who was the son of perdition. And why is it that Jesus knew this, but not the other 11? Because he sees into the hearts of men. They're not at fault for not seeing this. Because we just have to do the best that we can. All we can do is go by what we see and what a man says. And up to that point, Judas gave the appearance of being one of them. And because we are to exercise love and grace and kindness toward one another, if someone claims to be a Christian, and if what they are doing is consistent with the Christian life, at least outwardly, then we assume what? That they are a Christian. But ultimately whether they are or not, will be exposed by Christ on the day of judgment. Sometimes it'll be exposed in this life whenever they commit these open sins, but sometimes not. But who will bring it all to light on the day of judgment? Jesus Christ, because he has access to the hearts of men. This is a peculiar attribute to God, something that only God possesses, the ability to discern what is in the hearts of men. Jeremiah chapter 17, Jeremiah 17, verses 9 and 10. Jeremiah 17, verse 9 says, The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the hearts. I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to to the results of his deeds. Here, the heart is so desperately sick, he says, who can even understand it? We don't even understand our natural carnal heart, how desperately sick it truly was. But who does understand it? The Lord does. He understands it perfectly. He searches the heart. He searches the mind. He and he alone knows these things. God knows the hearts of men, and this ability to see and test the hearts of men is also specifically ascribed to Jesus Christ. John chapter 2. John chapter 2. John 2 verses 24 and 25. It says, But Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. He knew all men. He knew what these men were. These were those who were professing him, believing in him because they saw the signs that he was performing. Yet Jesus would not entrust himself to them because he knew that their believing was false, that they were not true professors but they were false professors of him. Also, Revelation 2, verse 23. Revelation 2, 23. says, And I will kill her children with pestilence, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. Here, this is this judgment against this false prophetess that was there in the church of Thyatira. And what Christ was going to do to her and then to her children. He was going to kill them. Though they are there in the church, and though others consider them to be true believers, right? They're counted among them. 
Jesus knows who they are. He knows what they really are. And he's going to execute judgment upon them. And when he does, then the rest of them will know that he is the one who searches the hearts and minds of men. Jesus possesses this attribute. When we judge, we cannot see the secret recesses of the heart. So when we judge, we must exercise great caution, great patience, if we are to bring about true and just judgments. But Jesus is able to quickly pass judgment without any possibility of making a mistake, for he has access to the thoughts and intentions of the hearts of men. So, for example, take two men. Two men who both come to worship the Lord. And both of them come, and both of them bring an offering to the Lord. The one man brings his offering from a good and true heart. He's offering his gift out of love for God. Christ is able to see into his heart. He sees why he's doing it. He sees that it's coming from faith. He sees that there is true love of God in this man, true faith in his heart, that this man's desire is to bring glory and honor to God. Then there's another man. In terms of outward action, it's identical. He's doing the exact same thing. He's coming to worship. He's bringing an offering to the Lord. But this man comes with ill motives. He's coming not because of love for God, but he wants to be seen by others so that men will praise him, so that they will congratulate him, so that he might receive these things. Christ is able to see the intention of that heart. He sees that that man is corrupt. He sees that he has no true love for God. He sees that there's not true faith in him, but only self-love and self righteousness. And he's able to judge this action based upon what he sees in the heart, the principles by which it is proceeding from the men. This is how Jesus is able to judge. He sees all things. And did he not do this in Luke 21 verses 1 to 4 when the men were coming to the temple and they were putting their offerings in the offering box and there was the poor widow who came and put in her very meager offering, and yet what did Jesus conclude? What did he observe and what did he make known there to his own disciples? That this woman put in more than all the rest because she gave all that she had to live on while they were giving out of their excess. How did Jesus know these things about this woman? Because he is able to see and to judge according to the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Now, what is the point of all of this in terms of the passage that we have been teaching through? Well, whatever we think or do, even the thoughts and intentions of our hearts, we must understand that these are known by Christ. And all of it will be brought forward on the day of judgment. If we possess an evil, unbelieving heart, if we fall away from the living God, if we are not diligent to enter into his rest, then how will we escape the all-seeing eyes of Christ and how will we escape on the day of judgment? Christ will see and Christ will punish on the day of judgment. So instead of being hypocrites, instead of being false professors, instead of being apostates, we should be true. We should be sincere in our profession of faith in Christ. And when we see the very first signs of apostasy in our hearts, of compromise in our hearts, of weariness in the things of God rising up within us, then what do we need to do very quickly? We must repent. We must repent and mortify the deeds of the flesh and be renewed by repentance. And we must understand that as long as we have the flesh, and we all still possess the flesh within us. I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. So if I want to do right, and here right is diligently entering into God's rest, what is the evil that lies close at hand? What is that evil going to tempt me to do? To turn away from the living God. To not be diligent to enter into his rest. There is always going to be that desire, that temptation, to turn away from the living God. And whenever it begins to rear up its ugly head, we need to chop it off. Chop it off and be renewed by repentance and press on until we enter into the kingdom of God. And that 
Temptation is going to be intensified during times of suffering, trials, and tribulations. We will be tempted to forsake the faith, to turn away from Christ. That's what's happening in the book of Hebrews with these Hebrew Christians. They're being tempted to go back on their profession of faith in Christ, and he's telling them, do not give up your hope. Do not so easily give up your confidence, but you must be diligent. You must persevere. You must endure to the very end. We must press on until we enter into the kingdom of God. And while we are pressing on, whatever there is that entangles us, that keeps us from running with endurance, we need to shake these things off, constantly doing this throughout the course of our life. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 says, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Whatever there is that's an encumbrance, whatever sin that entangles us, right? If sin is entangling you, how are you going to be able to run with endurance? We can't run when our feet are entangled with vines, with thorns, with thistles. We cannot do those things. Well, whatever there is of sin that entangles us, we have to throw it off so that we can run with endurance and keep our eyes fixed on who? on our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. Did Jesus give up? Did he turn away? Did he curse God and die? No. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. For the joy set before him, he was able to endure the sufferings of the cross. And so we also, for the joy set before us. And what is the joy set before the believer? Is it not eternal rest with God? It is eternal life with God. That joy set before us is what will cause us to persevere, to endure, to run the race with endurance until we enter into the kingdom of God. And let us go to the one who is the searcher of the hearts of men. Christ knows your heart better than you do. So we should go to him and ask him to reveal what is in our heart to use his sword, to cut deep within our heart, expose whatever sin is there so that we can repent of it, so that we can mortify it, so that we can overcome it by faith. This is what the prophet David did in Psalm 139, 23. He said, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there are any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. He's saying, I don't even know how anxious my thoughts are. I don't even know how hurtful the ways are that lie within my heart. But who does know? Lord, you know. You're able to search those things out. So you search me, you try me, you test me, and then you lead me into the way everlasting. We ought to pray to Christ for him to exercise his powerful sword on our hearts and our consciences to penetrate deep into our hearts, to remove what remains of unbelief, of apostasy, and to create a clean heart within us and renew a right spirit. This is what Christ can do for us. And because we know he is living and active, this is what he will do for his people. So let us then go to the Lord who is living and active and let us pray that he might have his work among us, bringing our faith to its end, which is the redemption of our bodies. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you today, Lord, thanking you. Lord, that everything that we need for life and godliness can be found in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you that he is the living one. He is the one who has life in himself. And he is the one who has given to us, Lord, not only our physical life, but Lord, he is the one who gives spiritual life. Lord, to those who are dead in their trespasses and sins. Lord, we thank you that you have been so kind and compassionate. Lord, to grant to us eternal life. 
Lord, to take that dead heart that was within us and, Lord, to breathe new life into it. Lord, to call us to come out of the tomb and, Lord, come up to new life. Lord, we thank you as well that our Lord Jesus Christ is powerful, Lord, and that he is active and that he is always working, Lord, within his church and among his people. Lord, we pray that your power would be known in us and that it would be seen so clearly, Lord, in the victory that you give to us over sin, Lord, that you would cause us to walk in your ways, Lord, to do those things that are pleasing in your sight. So, Lord, exercise your power and be active, we pray, Lord, among us today. We pray that you would be here moving, Lord, amongst your church, and that you would be the one that is examining our hearts, Lord, testing us, searching us, Lord, using your sword to penetrate deep within us. Lord, renew our consciences, Lord, to a right understanding of what is good and right. Lord, convict us of our sin, Lord, so that we might hate it the way that you do. And Lord, we pray that you would, Lord, grant to us, Lord, a greater faith, Lord, more righteousness, Lord, more peace, more joy, Lord, more grace and mercy. Lord, all of these things we need, and yet you are the one who possesses, Lord, all good things. And we pray that you, our Heavenly Father, would pour out your gifts, Lord, graciously and generously among your people. Lord, work for our salvation. Lord, bring it about. And Lord, we pray that we would be faithful and wise servants, Lord, who are found doing the will of their master when he returns. So that when we stand before you on that day of judgment, Lord, we do not want to hear those words, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. But Lord, we want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Lord, we want to enter into the joy of our master. So Father, may this joy that you have set before us, this promise of eternal life, Lord, you being the rewarder of men, Lord, you possessing life in yourself, you can give eternal life to whomever you will. Lord, please grant eternal life to us. And may this hope, this promise of eternal life with you, Lord, may it always be in our hearts and in our minds. Lord, we pray that it would be before us all the days of our life and that it would cause us to run with endurance the race that is set before us, that we would keep our eyes fixed on Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. Lord, he endured sufferings that are so great, Lord, we will never know, Lord, even a, a fraction of the sufferings that Christ endured. He endured all of those things for us. So, Lord, may we endure our light momentary afflictions for him until we enter into that kingdom. So, Lord, grant to us all that we need for eternal life, for salvation. And, Lord, may we be found as those who are faithful to you who persevere until the very end. And it is in Christ's precious name that we pray. Amen.